turn to James. Let's spend some time in the Word, seeing what God would have for us today. We are starting in chapter 2 today. I've been struck lately, spending this time in James, although James does not spend as much time as, say, uh, Paul might, talking uh, as, as much time as Paul does, talking about uh, the person of Christ or our union with him. I've been struck uh, as to how much of James only makes sense if there is faith in Christ and faith in a future hope. Right? So much of James, if you take Christ out of the picture and you take away the hope that we have for what Christ has promised to those who love him, James becomes a largely empty and meaningless book. If there is no resurrection from the dead through Christ, what does it matter whether we endure in our times of trial and testing? Let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But if Christ has brought resurrection into, broken into this age, leading into the age to come, if there is a future hope, if all of our trials and times of testing and affliction are working for us an eternal weight of glory, then what we do in the midst of our times of trial and testing are infinitely important. Similarly today, if it's not for Christ and the hope that we have in the future, how we relate to one another, especially the weakest in our midst, really does not matter. But if Christ has come and has changed the order of this world and the world that's to come, then the way that we relate to people is infinitely important. James chapter 2, read with me verses 1 through 7. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and then say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brothers. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Would you bow with me? Father, do now through your word what you will, because it is your good pleasure to accomplish your plan and your counsel in our midst through the scriptures by the power of your spirit. We are trusting in you. Amen. So here's the thing that I'd like to do in the time that we have before we, uh, before we gather around the Lord's table to remind ourselves of his death and resurrection and the continuing life that we have in Christ. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the illustration that James uses, right? That for the most part, this section of James is fairly straightforward. James is saying, within a Christian community or a Christian assembly, there ought not to be any signs or displays of favoritism. 
choosing or picking one person over another for such crass or insignificant reasons as who has more money. All right? The, the illustration that he uses is fairly straightforward. We don't really need to delve into that. Rather, what I would like to do is to try to spend most of our time talking about the reasons why that kind of favoritism, that kind of self-interested love towards another person rather than to all of the community, why that is such an offensive thing in the Christian faith. Let me say, though, from the, from the outset, that some of you may be here, and, and differences in terms of personal income, since we're talking about rich and poor here, differences in terms of personal income may or may not mean anything to you, right? If, if that's the case, if, if, you know, financial income, those who are well, if those who are poor, doesn't, doesn't mean anything, you can, you know, just as easily pass from, you know, one economic strata to the other with little to no issues. Think more broadly, then. Think not just in terms of where you, who you favor in terms of rich or poor, but think perhaps in terms of who you are tempted to favor when it comes to the strong and the weak. Right? We favor the strong because the strong have something that they can provide for us. The strong can support us. The weak can't. Or the strong don't need anything from me, whereas the weak always seem to be taking. I want to be with the strong. It's much easier that way. Do you see? or those of high standing and low standing, right? You don't really care about money. You don't really care about strong and weak. You just want people to respect you. And in order for people to respect you, you feel like you need to be with respectable people. You find some of your Christian brothers and sisters just a little uncouth, a little embarrassing, because of the way that they talk or the way that they act, right? And so because of those trivial things, you, you gear your attention, your affections even, towards people that you are more comfortable with or who just suit your preferences more than the other. So whether it's rich or poor, strong or weak, high or low, reputable or unreputable, I think the application or the transfer is easy to make. James is going to use the example of rich and poor. Three reasons why favoritism should not be a part of our faith. Here are the three, and then we'll, we'll walk through as best we can. Number one, our faith should be without favoritism because favoritism denies our faith in Christ. Favoritism denies our faith in Christ. That's in verse one. Number two... Favoritism denies our faith in God's choice. And we could even tack on that, perhaps, God's choice and his favor. That's in verse 5. And if we have time, I don't know if we will, the third reason would be that favoritism denies what we all know by experience. Verses 6 and 7. So favoritism denies our faith in Christ. Favoritism denies our faith in God's choice. And favoritism denies what we all know by personal experience. These are three reasons I think that James gives as to why showing personal favoritism to one person over another should be anathema to us, should be 
just totally absent from our faith. So let's start with number one. Favoritism denies our faith in Christ. One of the interesting things right at the very start of chapter 2 is the way that James refers to Christ. He says, My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one other place in James where that string is used, Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in verse 1 in the introduction to the letter. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere else in the book of James, when James is referring to Christ, he just simply refers to Christ as the Lord, right? So, if you need wisdom, ask in faith, but ask without doubting. Let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He, he just uses the title Lord to refer to Christ. But here in one, the only place in the body of the letter where he refers to not just the Lord, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just the Lord Jesus Christ, but the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? I don't think it's accidental. Here's what I think that James is doing. James is dealing with the problem of playing favorites in the church according to an artificial or a fleshly standard. And James wants us to consider right out of the gate how completely opposite and backward that is when it comes to the faith that we confess in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By using the name Jesus Christ, what James is doing is he is directing our minds to the mystery of the incarnation. That is, that God, infinite, eternal, satisfied, content, joyful, pleased with everything, chooses to leave all of the glory that he has and comes and takes on human flesh to save us. Paul says it this way, and I think this is in keeping with what James is doing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear that, Paul, pointing to the humanity of the Son? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Our faith is built on God making himself poor. And James is saying, it's like you people have forgotten that. And you're finding yourself attracted to the rich rather than to the poor. Your Savior was poor. What are you doing? The infinite gap that exists between the divine nature and the human nature is something that we cannot possibly begin to conceive or understand. Just simply by taking on a human nature like ours, God effectively comes to slum in this earth. 
He was untouchable, and he made himself not simply touchable, but able to suffer. He owns it all, and he came, and in his human nature, he owned nothing. He was infinitely satisfied, never for one moment sad or discontent. And he comes here and he makes himself a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The infinite gap that exists between the divine nature and the human nature that Christ takes on, that is the basis of our faith. God has come in the flesh to rescue undeserving sinners, we will praise and we will acclaim that bridging of the gap, and then we are unwilling to bridge the gap of a few thousand dollars. These things ought not to be. And it's not just the fact that our faith is rooted in the idea that God made himself poor so that we could become rich. Therefore, should not we be attentive to those around us who are also poor? Right? But it's also not just what Jesus did, but what he taught. Look, hold your place here in James and go back. Start with me in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, Jesus began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Notice, unlike what Jesus is recorded as saying in Matthew here, it is not blessed are you who are poor in spirit, although that's also true. Jesus actually says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Turn over a few more pages in Luke to chapter 14. Look at verses 12 through 15. Jesus also went on to say, Luke 14, 12, Jesus also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You hear that last part that Jesus said in verse 14? After saying, don't invite the people who are already well off. Don't invite the people that you're comfortable with. 
They'll return your kindness with similar kindness, and that's going to be the extent of your reward. Invite the people who have nothing to give you in return. Because, Jesus said, you will, you will be repaid at the resurrection. Do you know what part of our problem is? And I say our, my, myself included. Part of our problem with our inconsistency in living the Christian life is that we so easily forget that there is a resurrection day. We don't take to heart and mind that this world as we know it, this life as we know it, is not the way that it's always going to be. This life, compared to the resurrection age in eternity, is barely a blip on the radar. Live in light of eternity. Live in light of the fact that these people who look down and out, these people who you ordinarily would not be drawn to, that you would not find your affections going to, live in light of the fact that one day they, along with you, particularly if they are your brothers and sisters, obviously, in Christ, that they, one day, like you, are going to be raised to new life, and all of this, this other stuff, these trappings that don't mean anything, all of that is going to be burned up and consumed. It's going to be gone. Your comfortable kindness to those who are kind to you could one day lead to a loss of reward in the eternal age because you didn't take full advantage of living more like Christ with eternity in your view. Do you hear that? Don't take your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was rich and made himself poor. Don't worship a weak and humble Savior and then turn and gravitate in your personal time, in your time here at church with those people who are of equal standing with you. It loses sight of the humility of our Savior in the Incarnation. It loses sight of the truth and the reward that comes in eternity with the resurrection. Not taking into account the person and work of Christ and the hope that He offers, showing this kind of crass favoritism or this kind of selfishness is to deny the very things that we, con that we confess. That's number one. Number two, and closely related, favoritism denies our faith in God's choice. Look with me at verse 5. After giving the illustration of choosing the rich man over the poor man, and with evil, evil motives and evil intents, intent, James comes back and says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Isn't it interesting, in the illustration that James gives about the rich man and the poor man, he doesn't say anything about their faith. 
He just says, suppose a rich man and a poor man come in. They apparently are not very familiar with this congregation or this gathering because they have to be directed or told where it is that they can sit. So you get the feel or the impression that these two men who are coming in are not regulars, probably not members, maybe not even regular attenders for that matter. This, they may be coming in at the same time. They don't know anything about any, either man except for the fact that this guy has money and this guy does not. Okay, knowing that that's all you can discern in these two people, who are you going to spend your time and attention with? Who will you choose? And James asked a rhetorical question, who would God choose? Well, back in verse 5, he tells us, doesn't he? Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now listen, I don't think that, that the point of verse 5 is to say that God does not love rich people. Right? There, there's no virtue in poverty any more than there's virtue in wealth. That's not the issue. The point that's being made in verse 5 is that the basis of your choosing, of your favoritism, is out of line, is not in step with God's heart and mind. You're gravitating to the rich, to the powerful, to the well-connected, to the successful. God loves the people who are weak and low. Paul says, just rounding this idea out, in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, most of you are familiar with this. You don't need to turn there right now. Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things... Of the world and the despised God has chosen those things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are according to these worldly standards, so that no man may boast before God. Has God chosen you for salvation? I'm not, I'm not trying to get into the nitty-gritty of theology here. I'm just, just in a basic question. If you've been saved, that, that's evidence of the fact that God has chosen you, correct? So if you're here in Christ, God, God has chosen you for salvation. As a general rule, the preponderance of evidence, according to the Scriptures, is that God does not choose the best of the best. He does not choose the cream of the crop. He doesn't choose the wisest. He doesn't choose the strongest. He tends to choose those people who are foolish and weak. So if God has chosen you and I, what does that strongly suggest about our nature? That He chose us because He needed us? That He chose us because He was obligated 
to take us? No. He simply chose to demonstrate that he is gracious and merciful to people who are unable to help themselves. And the person who has come to see their poverty before the Lord, that they are nothing more than a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We'll find it increasingly difficult to take a haughty, prideful, self-selecting, self-serving choice in the people that God brings into our midst. These things that people build their lives on in this world, in this kingdom, it's not going to last. The rich man is going to pass away with all of his wealth, with all of his connections, with all of his power. If he is not in Christ, his riches will not mean anything in the day of judgment. But if a man or a woman has nothing but Christ, they have it all. C.S. Lewis reflecting on this paradox of the fact that we struggle so much to know how to relate to one another with all of our quirks, with all of our failings, with all of the things that would normally drive us apart, says this. He says, it is, it is hardly possible for a Christian to think too often or too deeply about the potential glory of his neighbor. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. There can be little doubt that at the end of the day, when we finally stand before the Lord face to face, that one of the greatest shocks to our system, I think it'll be a glorious shock, I think that we will be delighted by it, but will be similar to the unveiling of the glory of Christ that happened from his incarnation to his exaltation. For us to share in that unveiling when God's people will be shown to be who they really are when we will live with him shining like the sun and so many other bright, attractive people pass away into the shadows, never to be seen again. As we come to the Lord's table, consider that not only your entrance into this life, but your continuance in this life 
is because God in His grace, through the work of His Son, made Himself poor so that you could become rich. And we, undeserving of the riches of Christ, should be all the more eager to share those riches without qualification or hesitation with anyone that the Lord brings our way.